I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... I think over the last 30 years, we've shown DC is different, but we need to keep doing it. In 2008, we probably lost 60% of our investors from DC. Hell, our biggest investor even doesn't have their headquarters here anymore. NEA is headquartered in the Valley. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, along with producer Tracy Madigan. Our guest today is a friend of the show, Steve Balistrieri. Steve is a managing director at Morgan Franklin Consulting here in the DMV. Actually, they're nationwide. But also, he is a person that is in the founding team of Mindshare. If you haven't heard of that, you definitely want to learn more about it. It is probably the premier community organization for first-time CEOs in both technology and other types of companies. They've been in the business for 27 years, have hundreds and hundreds of graduates who led fascinating companies to growth, many of them that you've heard of. And Mindshare is one of the examples of community that Steve Balistrieri is passionate about. Community of investors, entrepreneurs, government of officials, service providers like lawyers and accountants. That's community, and that's what the DMV has always needed and will always need. Here's our conversation. But Steve, welcome back to the show. Mark, great to be here. Tracy, thank you guys both for having me back. I loved it the first time, and I'm even more excited to do it again. Wow, can't stay away, as they say. So we have many topics to touch on. I know that uh, some of them are kind of more meta than than mm-hmm. uh, than 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 under than, than than others. I would love to start with Mindshare. It's a brand that has been very meaningful here in the DMV for a wide variety of executives who have gone through the program. And I'd love for you to walk us through what the program is and the kind of people that apply, kind of people that find value out of it, and maybe some of the outcomes. I know there's some recent events as your graduating class and a fresh class coming in. So tell our listeners about Mindshare, what it's meant to you and how it's structured. Yeah, look, Mark, thank you for asking. Mindshare is is the thing that I do in my life, uh, other than my family, that I love the most. It is it is a passion of mine. Look, Mindshare is is kind of a uh, under the radar gem, not much for much longer. We have Mindshare has been around since 1997. We are about to graduate in December, our our 27th class. We have 1,300 alumni, and then in in January we will select our 2024 cohort, our 28th class. Mindshare started in '97 uh, by three folks who you know. Uh, Gene Rickers, April Young, Harry Glazer, um, really out of a need, right? They saw a need where these companies were raising a ton of money because they could put .com after their name and investors were chomping at the bit. If you remember 97, you know, I do. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I, I do too. And companies were raising tons of money, but these entrepreneurs had maybe a technical background. They didn't know what to do when they raised money. They've got investors now, they've got boards. How do you go about running a business? And, and more importantly, you know, when you are in a business and running a business, what you find as a CEO is your head's down, you're in the business and you're not kind of poking up to say, who else is doing what I'm doing? And, you know, are there people that maybe solved so for some of the problems that I'm facing right now in building a business? Um, Mindshare started out to solve that problem by doing two things, bringing together a cohort of CEOs, founders together so that they could together talk about the challenges they are, they're having in building a business because likely if you put a group together, somebody solved the problem you're facing right now, or you've prob- 
solve the problem that somebody else is facing. So to bring them together and create a cohort, and second, to bring experienced veteran CEOs to them, speak to them, give them lessons in how to be a CEO, how to build a business. That was 1997. Mindshare has remained relevant since then, um, really focused on bringing together a cohort, must be a CEO or founder of a business, having committed to the entrepreneurial journey. Uh, for a long time, we were really focused on, on technology companies, it, companies that had proprietary technology. You know, we got to 25 years and we looked around the DC area and said, you know what? It's not just white men starting software companies in DC anymore. It is companies that are product-based. It is companies that are, um, are, are business to consumer companies, right? It is founders that are of different colors, of different ages, of different races. And, and we really need, and, and the commitment I made to this organization is we want to remain relevant for the next 25 years. So Mindshare right now, is a program still only for founders or CEOs, primarily first-time CEOs or founders uh, who have committed to the entrepreneurial journey, but are building building disruptive product companies. You could be a B2C company. You could be the next great juice or drink company. You could, you could be the next great product company, but we're going to bring together a cohort of between 45 and 60 CEOs together for a one-year program that brings them into a cohort and, and brings to them great content from experienced founders and CEOs who share their lessons in what it means to build a company. Um, and we're really excited about, about the 2024 class and the prospects, but we're also excited to graduate our 23 class. Well, last time I checked, uh, since 1997, there have been some cycles, right? So 1997, <laughs> we started one of the great uh, venture investment uh, uh, dumps of cash into companies yep. for the next four to five years until really 01, 02, when the, when the, when yep. the, the dot-com bubble burst. I'll start to cry here in just a minute because I, I, I lived through it. But being <laughs> through those cycles, I'm sure Mindshare has had different kinds of support systems that these yeah. first-time CEOs have touched on. But let me ask, you mentioned 40 to 60. Has the, has the class always been that size? Has it gone up and down? What, what's been the math? Uh, we've toyed with that a little bit, right? We've tried bigger classes, 60 to 70. We found out it didn't work real well and our graduation rate went down. We've toyed with smaller classes in the 20 to 30 range. Um, and it seemed like it wasn't enough concentration. Um, we've, we like that, say, 45 to 60 range. Um, generally speaking, we have about you know, it, about eight to 12% dropout. You got to graduate. You got to meet five out of the eight classes to graduate. So we have about, you know, usually 10% uh, or so don't graduate. Um, we found that a sweet spot is in that 45 to 60. Plus it gives those entrepreneurs enough time to meet many of their cohort partners. Yeah. And that is what we're really looking for. We, we've we had, in Mindshare, we've had folks in that class in the same cohort, one company has bought another. We've found business partners Hell, we've had marriages come out of the Mindshare class, right? It is everything. It is building your personal and private network, but also really helping accelerate the growth of your business. We're well, accepting. I do want to Go plug ahead. this. Uh, between November 1st um, and the end of, uh, of December, middle January, we're accepting nominations for the Mindshare class. Got and it. so if you know of or working with a great first-time CEO entrepreneur that you think would be good for the Mindshare program. You know, it's got to be proprietary product or technology. They have to be willing to show up live. They have to be that CEO or founder. 
that showing up live part, man. I, you know, COVID took a bite out of that. We can touch on COVID's impact on Mindshare in just a second. I, actually, we'll return to it. And once again, we're talking with Steve Balistrieri. I think I dropped an R there the first time, my okay. friend. I apologize. I will make sure. sure I sneak it in there from now on. Steve is our guest here on What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, along with producer Tracy Madigan. So this idea of Mindshare as a community yeah. I know we were we were chatting earlier about community kind of in a, in a larger stance, larger stance. Um, let's talk about community of investors and entrepreneurs in the quote DMV. I know yeah. you have some thoughts about uh, uh, entities that service the community or the growth of the community. What's your snapshot of where we are as a as an investor, entrepreneurial growth, innovation community in the DMV, and what do you think should be next? Yeah, look, l- let me start with kind of the the what's been the headline, right? The district, the DMV, if you look at it, is a top 10, permanently top 10 investor community. If you parse the numbers, sometimes we're top five, based on whether you look at the deals that are done or the dollars invested, right? But we are a, a certainly a, a top 10 year in and year out entrepreneurial network in the U.S. Um, uh, and I'd argue even top five. Right. We have a great collaborative community of investors, of entrepreneurs, of great experience. Right. We've got a ton of Hallmark companies from AOL, right, which you're very familiar with, down through MicroStrategy, Blackboard and many others that have set the stage for for the development of, of a great entrepreneurial network. We have outstanding universities, right, that are graduating really smart people into the technology universe. Right. So we have all of the hallmarks of a world class entrepreneurial community. And when you throw in the economic development, as well as how the government interacts, um, we have a great, great uh, community here that is collaborative. But we're very different than Boston, New York, San Francisco, right? We don't work the same because we have a a great big buyer in our backyard that is the government, right? That influences many things. So historically, I think people still think about D.C. as a government town and a government community. I think over the last 30 years, we've shown D.C. is different, but we need to keep doing it. In 2008, we probably lost 60 percent of our investors from D.C. Hell, our biggest investor even doesn't have their headquarters here anymore. NEA is headquartered in in the Valley. Yeah. Um, So we need to continue to reinvent and re-message what's important about the D.C. entrepreneurial community. Um, The pandemic did not help us. Right. It, it shut things down. But there were some there were some some folks who kept this community going. I'd argue Mindshare was part of that. Tian Wong and Connectpreneur, Doug Anderson and the DCA Live. They kept the community coming together. I do think that I'm starting to see lives of the community coming back together. Certainly Tian, DCA Live, what Mindshare is doing, come back live. But also you're seeing communities of interest come back together, um, whether it's women's networks coming together and, and, and making sure there's a foundation for supporting women entrepreneurs and women in technology. That's coming back. The work that Natalie Buford Young and Springboard are doing is exceptional, right? Um, you know, the, DC lost some things. MAVA, the Mid-Atlantic Venture Association, went away, right? right? And they used to host our investor conference, our annual Capital Connection Investor Conference. Um, Tian Wong, myself, have been part of one that we're trying to get off the ground uh, with the folks at George Mason and the Enterprise Institute. We just had our third Accelerate Investor Conference. It itself, very Northern Virginia-centric, right? And very much around GMU. I think we need another conference that brings that brings together the DC community across the DMV with the universities, with the entrepreneurs, with investors, and really engages the out-of-market investors who are spending a lot of time investing in DC. DC companies are still getting funded. We're top 10, 
even having dropped off the number of local investors, that means out-of-market investors are coming to town and dropping cash. They're dropping cash in our defense tech, in cybersecurity, in our life science companies, right? In our pure infrastructure and software companies, which are the areas DC does really well. We need to celebrate that community and we need to bring it together in a much more robust way um, and, and in a DMV wide way, right? Bringing those communities of interest together. That's what I that's what I think we need to go to next. Um, I'm excited about the traction that's starting to come back after the Fed and has thawed. Um, I think we need to move even quicker. Well, it's funny because I, I was, uh, and once again, was speaking with Steve Balistrieri. Steve is the managing, is a managing director at Morgan Franklin Consulting here in the area and also uh, the treasurer and um, uh, a key player at Mindshares we were just touching on. But, you know, I was part of a an ad hoc committee that Montgomery County, Maryland, the big county north of uh, of D.C., in between D.C. and Baltimore, um, put together for business growth in Montgomery County. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the DMV is all three of us, so so we all care yeah. about each other. But heck, there's definitely some competition between the states. There is. And, yeah. and you know, it, it, when you do the assessment, you realize – like 60% of the market cap of the hospitality industry is in Montgomery County with just, you know, yeah. not just Marriott, it's a bunch of other companies. And then to your point, you touch on the universities and how they're pumping out the raw material of, of interesting undergrads and graduate students at a wide variety of things. But you look at um, quantum computing and cyber through the various intelligence community players and all that, the appetite for those technologies is just off the charts. So whether I, I sometimes say, I, you know, to your point on top 10, I sometimes say, you know, uh, it's DC is like an iceberg, you know, like, like, like 10% is above this, above the surface that you see in deals and M&A, yeah. but a lot ain't. And it's, and it's yeah. frankly, it's sadly because the stuff that's going on is stuff we're not supposed to reveal because it's, you know, national security and stuff like that. But there's huge transactions going on outside of the typical sort of Palo Alto view. Yeah. Look, Mark, you're you're making my point with me. We should make the point back and forth to each other, back and yes, forth. Yeah. Like, this is why I love coming here, right? Because we say we're thinking the same ways. I will tell you that we need to do a better job to the extent we can in, in spotlighting, in celebrating those things that do make us different. And, and you just brought up, look, if you look at Hilton, Choice, Marriott, hospitality just by itself is, is a concentration. The life science community from Rockville to Baltimore with Johns Hopkins here and the great Rockville community, we should be absolutely celebrating that and bringing, look, the investors already know about it if they're, if they're smart. They're dumping a bunch of money here. We need to celebrate so everybody else knows, the rest of the world knows what we have going on in the DMV. Okay, we're cheerleaders. We got our pom poms on. This is making a ton of sense. It's it's what's working in Washington. Our guest is Steve Balistrieri. Steve is a managing director at Morgan Franklin Consulting, but also one of the key players and treasurer now of Mindshare, an organ, a, a community organization that we touched on. We're going to come back with more conversation about uh, the actual market assessment and some of the investment parameters we're seeing with some compression, some compression on valuation, and also yeah. those two important letters we'd love to say AI after this. So stay tuned. <laughs> Let's walk through what Morgan Franklin does, what your role is there, what kind of clients and customers and interactions Morgan Franklin uh, specializes in, if at all. Look, Morgan Franklin is a a national full-service consulting firm. At Morgan Franklin, I'm a managing director, and I lead the industry practice for the national industry practice for technology, media, and telecommunications. Right? When I say full-service, you know, we, we, we fancy ourselves consultants around kind of the 
the, the full operations of a business. We have everything from integrators of technologies like like NetSuite and OneStream and the Microsoft platform. We have a strategy group that, that really helps organizations uh, rethink how they structure themselves, how they operate, and how they go to market. Uh, we have a compliance group that is everything from Sarbanes-Oxley and internal audit to government contract compliance. And then last but not least, right, we have a whole team of, of top technical accountants and finance folks who can help your finance function excel and, and do everything from a transaction, you know, from a, a Series A fundraise all the way through an IPO, um, you know, based and headquartered in the DMV. But we have offices around the country and a great team of folks at Morgan Franklin. Thank you for giving me the chance to speak about it. No, I, I- I, uh, it's important for our listeners to know what's going on in the district. It's funny or in, in the arena. So um, John Oliver, I guess, two or two weeks ago had a piece on McKinsey. I'm not sure you get a chance to take a look at that. Uh, my, you yeah. know, I have, I have many interactions. I went to business school with a lot of people that ended up at McKinsey for, for a long, long time. And it was so interesting to see now, look, he's John Oliver, right? He's, he's going to, he's yeah. going to just, he's going to take somebody and just paste the living crap out of him. But right. it was interesting to see him BCG, Bain and McKinsey, you know, the sort of, in that management consulting role. First of all, I didn't realize how big they were, but your firm sounds way more uh, operational, granular, actually putting your fingers into the rich, loamy earth of what the company's all about versus high-end strategic consulting like McKinsey. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I will tell you that, uh, yeah, we do not, we are not at this at the same reputational level as a, um, as a, a Bain or BCG or even my 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 alum firm Deloitte, right, which has got a great consulting firm in its own right. Right. Um, I will tell you that there's a couple differences between us and and those big firms, right? Certainly, we we play at the enterprise level. We've got some great big clients, but we are very very much more focused, I think, in the middle market. Um, yeah. But we do get very deep with our clients, right? We are very much ingrained, um, and even in our strategy, we are we are digging through their operations in a very detailed level, whether it's fun finance, compliance, technology, or even strategy. So it is, it is, it, I guess it would be less um, theoretical and in the ethos and it's much more granular. Excellent. That's uh, you got to live in the moment, right? You have um, to. But listen, we, we were chatting earlier in the show about kind of the market community, some of the, in some ways, some you were presenting some of the needs of the communities that yeah. Mava disappearing and stuff like that is a crying need. But let's talk about the market in general. What's your sense? Yeah. I mean, no, there's as an angel investor um, in my little firm, we we're seeing some real compression in valuation, which is natural yeah. cycles. What's your sense of that and and the and the market for angel first round venture style yeah. investment in general? Yeah, look, um, so let's talk kind of high level, right? The last the last certainly two years has been a challenge since the end of, and I'm saying two years because we're almost at the end of 23, right? Yeah. Um, look, I, I think you, you brought up valuations. I think valuations needed to compress, right? Yep. There was, as the cycle does regularly, and I'm old. I've been through a bunch of cycles, right? Back to the mid-90s we were talking about earlier. Um, look, valuations got way high, and not just at the seed and entry level. They got wild kind of every stage through uh, through corporate maturity. So I do think there needed to be a valuation compression. I also think that there needed to be a, a, um, a, a comeback to reality of, of how you spend cash, right? And, and focus a little bit on, on, you know, the operational metrics that matter, right? Are you actually gaining customers? Are you releasing product? Um, and, and, and I think how are you managing cash has become a more important question. Um, I think that's all come back. I still I still think it's a challenging market, even with valuation compression. Look, let's start at the investment community. 
if you're if you're trying to raise a fund, whether you are at, uh, at VC at any stage or even PE, fundraising for the investors is is slow, right? It is taking longer, and the amount they raise, they've had to reset expectations. Why is that? Because there's a lot of uh, LPs and institutional investors out there that haven't seen returns because there hasn't been a bunch of exits. PE funds are sitting on a huge portfolio of companies, um, as are the venture funds, right? The capital markets have largely been shut for a while, and that has um, uh, that has impacted how exits are happening. You know, and certainly since since interest rates started rising, the PE funds have not been able to exit because valuations have been coming down. Cost of capital is a lot higher, right? So that, you know, and 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 SPACs disappeared too. Well, look, so so we could have a, an entire conversation about SPACs and whether having them disappear is the right answer or not. I right, think it right. is. Um, but look, wh- why were SPACs that big? They were that big because no one was earning on it. There was no interest rate. No one yeah. could put money to work otherwise. And when you had a 10% rate of return, right, SPACs became popular. Yeah. Um, and you look, we like I said, we could have an entire show on the results of those SPACs. Um, but look, I, I still think the market is in a challenge. It is, it is companies raising money are, are being asked questions about how are you going to be capital efficient? Where is your product in development? Where, uh, what's your product market fit? Like what's your go-to-market strategy? These questions are very germane and even at the early stages, right? And, and so, uh, companies are taking, it's taking longer for companies to raise the next round. Um, but it's also forcing them to be more disciplined. Look, Mark, again, I've seen this come through in, in the, financial crisis in 2008 after the dot-com bust. I will tell you that the reason I'm optimistic is the best companies, you think about, if you go back to every every downturn and, and you look at the companies that made it through those, those are the best companies for the next five to 10 years. And that's what I expect to see about the companies that were able to raise and made it through this downturn. Uh, I think th- I think there are signs of light. Look, we had some IPOs go out yeah. in the last... Uh, Last couple of months, I, I think that the IPO market, the capital markets are going to continue to be challenged through the first six months of 24, um, just because the, the interest rate environment, there's a lot of uh, geopolitical uncertainty and there's a lot of our own government uncertainty, right? Is the government going to shut down? Is it not going to shut down? Shocking. I know. These things are going to happen. And then once you hit mid, mid late summer of 24, the capital markets generally shut down before a presidential election anyway to see who's going to be the next, who's in charge next, right? Yeah. yeah. If there's a window, it's going to be the next six months or so um, in the capital markets. I think the interest rate environment is still a challenge, right? Whether there's going to be one more rate increase this year or not. And then what does early 24 look like? I'm not hearing anybody talk about rates coming down, which means cost of capital is still going to be high. That's going to challenge the leverage buyout um, and the PE exit opportunity, right? Um, so I think, think there's going to be uncertainty in the economy uh, for the next 12 months, and that's going to continue to pose a challenge. Look, does that mean that great companies aren't going to get funded? Absolutely not. Great companies are always going to get funded. It's going to mean they're going to they're going to ask and answer different questions about their business, about the go to market, about the potential opportunity. Well, I, I completely agree, but I think also great companies are going to say instead of saying I'm raising three and a 25 pre, they're going to say I'm raising one and a half on an 11 pre uh, because yeah. the visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads will be sort of dissipated. Done. But these are, you know, to your point on cycle, this is, you know, we've all been to this movie. I just, I, I'm, I'm a little darker than you. I think it's going to be longer than 12 months before, you know, some of the, some of the heartbeat returns, uh, at least uh, the stuff we're seeing in uh, mostly angel and early C those, those valuations are, 
they're they're tough and i and those are yeah. usually kind of the seed corn for some of the larger stuff but listen you can you know it's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder there are arguments for both sides. I'm just the stuff I'm seeing is is a little tougher. But we're a little bit enlightening round here with our guest Steve Balistrieri. Steve is okay. the managing director and Morgan Franklin, and also uh, treasurer of Mindshare, an important organization here in the DMV. We promise to talk to each other about AI, the two letters yep. that are changing the world forever. Um, yep. Tell me what AI. I'm sure this is touching every single client you have at Morgan Morgan Franklin. Every single client that's in this in Mindshare, it's everywhere. But what are you seeing as far as the cycle of innovation within AI itself? What what's your sense there? Yeah, look, let, let me start by saying this. What is absolutely accurate is that AI is a revolution and it is an important revolution. Um, anybody that says it's a fad or not a revolution is missing the boat. Um, and uh, and so you know everybody needs to get on board. Right. Even if it's just playing around with Claude 2 or chat GPT in whatever way you're doing it. Right. You need to do it. Um, so it is a revolution. And it, it, it reminds me of other revolutions we've had. Right. The personal computing revolution, the Internet revolution, the mobile revolution. Right. And so, you know, in my experience, there is a cycle to these things. And I liken it to the, the mobile revolution. Right. When when the mobile revolution happened and, and mobile phones started becoming a thing. Everybody was asking, how do I push ads? How do I push content to the mobile phones? How do I develop for mobile, the mobile environment, right? And it always starts with, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop or I'm going to create in a very, very narrow capacity. I'm going to build an app or I'm going to do something that does one thing. That window of time is not long. It lasts a very short period of time if you look backwards. Um, the next thing that happens is companies are, are, are developing platforms around AI and they're building for the platform. What really happens after that is the enterprise jumps in and says, wait a second, why yep. do we need to buy externally? We need to bring these things in-house and we're going to bring our own team of developers and in-house and we're going to we're going to build AI in-house. So you're, see, I, I expect that revolution and, and that evolution to continue with AI. And and you think as we as again, sorry for the lightning round, but your your bet is kind of a six to nine month cycle for the for this. Matt, if you're a, if you're a company starting in a very narrow window, six months most. There you right? go. Look, I think dog six years. Most, I'm, I'm going to finish with uh, with a, with a comment I heard. The people are afraid of AI. You know what? You shouldn't be afraid of AI and AI is not going to change your job. What's going to change your job is people who know how to use AI. Right. Those right. are the people that are in demand and those are the exactly. people that enterprise is going to be looking for right now. Yeah. Well, as we go to our final question, I used to, when I worked at AOL, we used to say, hey, days are weeks, weeks are months, months are years, right? That was the urgency of AOL, which exactly. in some ways actually it was it made for a lot of bad decisions, but it was definitely definitely <laughs> true. But listen, Steve Balistrieri, we ask our guests at the end of every single show, if you rule the world, what's one thing you would start happening or one th that isn't or one thing you would stop happening that is? I'm going to go with with a tr with one word, and, and that is civility. I wish if I ruled the world, I would bring civility back. I think about it, particularly in our in our government, in, in our leaders. What I see is just uncivility. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's folks who can't respect the difference in each other. And if it was up to me. I would bring back Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan there you and go. their drinking sessions in the White House where they got crap done. Yep. I'd bring civility back. Alcohol our, always helps, right? <laughs> to our community. I would bring civility back. That's what I would hope for. Okay, Steve Balistrieri, fantastic prediction. It's been a wonderful time spending time with you in our conversation. Thank you for being on the show. Mark, thank you for having me, Tracy and Mark. Always a pleasure to be here. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.